Welcome to the Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find clinicians and researchers discussing cutting-edge research from the embodied relational sciences, explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Hello, and welcome back. And we're back. We're back. Another back in. year? Well, we've already done We already one. talked about that. <laughs> that's, that's, I can't say Sorry, that. the last time we were doing this an episode, <laughs> this is actually going to be a deep cut release. Oh, yeah, we're not. Only for next this. year. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. We're going to sit on this one. Well, actually, it is so spicy that we could. Let it marinate. We were talking about it before this episode. Uh, we'll get to the parenthetical in a second for those well, yeah, who anticipate back. that. I know you're anticipatory networks. Um, we we were we were talking about how spicy this article is, and I think it it might deserve some like, hey, viewer, <laughs> listener viewer discretion, discretion advice. <laughs> yeah. We are going to talk about not in like a profane way, but like very cutting edge mm. neuroscience that is, you know, to me reorganizing our conception of the brain and body fundamentally far beyond what. If you took a neuropsych course or even biopsych mm-hmm. course, um, for me, we talked about these structures very briefly mm-hmm. in school. And to see truly what modern research is revealing about their integral associative functions mm. in interconnected systems in the brain yeah. is remarkable. To yeah. say the least. Yeah. yeah. Even in that, I think that's a good window into the language we're going to be... Should we do the intro? Well, because I, I want to give, like... give, give listener discretion advice. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because the this language... This is actually a service announcement. Like yeah, before this is a ser- the episode yeah, even starts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll yeah. do an intro uh, later. later. Yeah, we'll do like a little... And then do the intro. Hey, but welcome. <laughs> now you have a peek behind the curtain. For those who are, you know, you, know, you love neuroscience you're probably going to hopefully get super jacked. If you're like, you know, take it or leave it, sometimes scientific language can really ruffle my feathers. It can get confusing. Stick with us. Stick with us in this episode. Maybe don't listen if you, but I think stick with us because the we'll get into language that I can already feel is like, ooh, it's really scientific language. Yeah. But the we'll try really hard to ground it in like a, a very like applicable understandable way but i say that to say like these concepts are too important to just like not talk about to not talk about yeah and i think that perpetuates the just shared naivety mm. of our field to not be introduced relationally to these concepts and continues to keep them in the dark about what is really going on yeah well and i like that language uh introduced relationally yeah uh, as opposed to like the to me the felt sense of shame when i don't know the language when i'm reading a book or an article or whatever and this like feeling of i'm way in over my head mm-hmm. and i'm probably it's probably me that's the problem yeah not the fact that these concepts are just incredibly complex but yeah. it's probably me and wanting this episode to be aware of that potential dynamic so that we can dispel that and and be introduced relationally to these concepts yes um i i told you before i started recording i'm working on something yes 
that <laughs> teaser all of this will be <laughs> stoke the desire <laughs> all of this no no that's it's not a sales thing <laughs> yeah no 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 but but it right in a way i know. go on for a couple sentences about despite our incredible advances technologically and experientially in traversing through some of the deepest parts of the ocean mapping a vast majority of land above water and even traveling inter solar system like with yeah. our technology there's still so little we actually know about our own brains ourselves and i go on to say that while beginning a chapter on the developing brain with a humbling reminder of how little we actually know about the structures and functions of the brain and mind this may seem discouraging but we hope it instills in you a posture of curiosity and wonder without the burden of certainty and understanding what is to follow. Mm. Also, there was a hint in there, but just cut it, cut, cut it. it back away, <laughs> back away. <laughs> yeah. What a, what a fascinating uh, thing that we could analyze, psychoanalyze that we're, we we're exploring so much of the world and yet outside of us yeah yet so mm -hmm. unimaginably mystified by what's inside of us mm -hmm. Welcome back to the evidence-based therapist. <laughs> I love that. I was just about to that's that felt like the perfect it, it cut was back perfect. in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we read, <laughs> <Where> we, read? <laughs> we read. All right, hold on. So you I'm going to do I'm okay, gonna start yeah, it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey. Welcome back to the evidence-based therapist where we, we read so, so you, you don't, don't have to. to. But we, we love it if you did. did. We that didn't was even like practice our best that. Heck yeah. so far. Close it. We're Close in. the parenthetical. Close it. That was that was a good one. Final final offer? Yes. Yep. Deal. Deal. Well, yeah. So if you've been tracking along with us and you've listened to the last couple months. <laughs> if you haven't. <laughs> good luck. This is not the one to start yeah. on. Yeah, it well, that's a good one. Okay, so if you haven't um, been kind of listening to episodes before this, one, you're probably like, what the heck is this intro? Because <laughs> we're all over the place. But then we're that's just six minutes that's in. how we do it here. Because uh, we want this to be relational. The other thing would be to go back three episodes. Wait, so, let me let me keep going. I'll, okay. I'll come in with the 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 producer, real, yeah. real the real information. I'm just giving <laughs> approximations. So last episode would have been this fun episode where Bridger and I talked about AI and different. Um, not a part of the series. Not a in. part of the series, but just a fun new year. You know, when you start the new year with in play. But then two episodes before that, we started a series on uh, large-scale brain systems from authors Koziel, Barker, Joyce, and Hren. Five episodes Five ago. episodes back. Okay. Cool, cool, cool. Just forget what I said. <laughs> no, no, I love what you said. It was yeah, yeah, really yeah, great. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just the number. Just the number. Yeah, so not two, and there, five. Like, who cares about the number, honestly? Yeah, like, true, it's some true. time ago. Yeah. The experience is what matters. Track back until it clicks yes and we'll talk about large large-scale brain systems where we're going through a series of articles by Koziel at all Koziel and colleagues that are looking at um, neuropsychology and how there's some serious updating that needs to be done in clinical neuropsychology and how we are bringing our understanding of our brain and body 
into these healing spaces with clients. Mm-hmm. Um, we did an episode just before that about our pers- personal perspective on neuroscience and how we don't think it's the silver bullet that's going to save all of us from every bad thing. Yeah. But there's a lot of good there. So Especially with this new depth of understanding. So you said something very important but could pass below the radar because these are somewhat common words now like neuropsychology. Hmm. But if we really break that word down, it is an immense burden on the field of neuropsychology in what they're trying to tether together, which is neurological realities, structural, chemical, and otherwise, biological biological realities to psychological phenomena. Just feel the weight of that. Yeah that the field of neuropsychology is is trying, is making a case. And that's an important thought, actually, <laughs> is making a hypothetical case yeah. for the connection between neurobiological realities and their psychological constructs. Yeah. Yeah. So then in the first article that we reviewed from Koziel and, and colleagues was looking at the structure and function of these large-scale brain systems. Of what are called large-scale brain systems. LSBSs. Yep. Um, And there were seven of them, and we looked at across those, just gave a little summary of each. Baked into that was the major reframe from modular Mm. or parts conceptualization of brain function into a systems understanding. Which is very important that... The amygdala like, is not the only epicenter of, of threat detection. Or, yeah. yeah, reactivity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is not the amygdala Just as an example. is a part of of ongoing process and system of attuning to and organizing information that could be threatening and therefore yeah. activating a fear response. But it is not the epicenter. So that's an important distinction. Like, yes, if you it moves, I love that language. It moves the the. L- location of function away from a part and into a system Mm -hmm. that asks instead not what the amygdala does on its own but what does it do as a part of a larger system and let's then think about the function of the brain through the system yeah which the authors give in the second part of the series a really helpful metaphor Mm. of trying to make sense of these what they call functional hubs within these large-scale systems. And these functional hubs are kind of like a business that is working together to create a product. So you have you know, the product creation team, you have the marketing team, you have the sales team, you have all of these teams that go into creating a product. Yeah, That's a great metaphor for understanding how a large world, basically the brain, gets functionally smaller through organizing in energy and information in certain directions. Yeah, localization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then in part three, what then the authors are going on to talk about is how the, these large-scale brain systems and their functional hubs connect with and have a relation to what's called subcortical networks. And really what they're looking at is the vertical organization of energy and information. Mm. Um, so you think uh, bottom-up... you. Probably listeners have heard bottom up versus top down. This article is really looking at what is the functional neuroanatomy and systemic flow of energy and information between these large scale brain systems that is bottom up and top down. Right. So I want everyone to have that visualization of what we mean by subcortical 
relationships in your mind. Because mm. again, this is a part of our relational introduction to some of these pieces of language that might feel very hard to grasp, mm. ironically, because they're a part of you, which is interesting. But I like Dan Siegel's hand model, mm. just to kind of break it up. Um, if you're looking at your hand, put your thumb into your palm and close your fingers around it. That's Dan Siegel's hand model of the brain. There's your brain. There's your brain. Subcortical is anything below your four fingers. So sometimes I'll use the word thinking cap. Yep, the thinking cap. Thinking cap that wraps around. That wraps around. And then if you're looking at an actual picture of your brain, everything that you see with all of the grooves and to me what kind of looks like a chewed up piece of gum, um, that's your cortical network. Um, so lots of structures in there that have been designated by their function. Um, but when you look at a brain, it's not like there's chunks of parts there. It's just like this one large cap that goes around what's subcortical, mm -hmm. uh, again, in functional designation. Um, so that's one way that everybody's trying to understand the brain, um, subcortical versus cortical. And what this article illustrates, again, building in sequence from the part one and two is our, our brain's psychological function is not based on part activation, but into a system. And that those systems in themselves are made up of integrated hubs. Mm. And then when we get to part three, which this episode showcases, we're looking at, if you imagine connections between your thumb and the palm of your hand to the cortical area. Mm. Um, so every part that touches, think about that as a means of connection that we're facilitating experience through. Mm -hmm. And so we have all kinds of things we're going to get into today with yeah. unconscious, conscious, implicit, explicit, memory, behavior, learning, development, etc. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love in, in using that model, it gives a really clear picture of I think a lot of people are either used to or have heard the concepts of conscious, unconscious, or explicit, implicit. Right. And so we kind of have explicit, implicit is kind of the cognitive neuroscience way of talking about what's what you're aware of versus what you may not be um, readily aware of mm -hmm. as far as processes of thoughts and brains and the way your brain is interacting with the world. Same is true with conscious and unconscious. Um, that's sort of more of a psychoanalytic way of talking, or even psychological way of I would, talking. Yeah. yeah, psychological. Yeah. So what what this article is really looking at for the awareness of these concepts is how does how do the implicit or unconscious processes give way to conscious and explicit processes? And one of the things that they do on a couple of occasions, there's two that I'm thinking primarily, is they kind of label problems in the field that they're seeking to solve. Right, which is kind of the premise of this entire series of articles. Mm -hmm. It's a case for what issues currently exist in neuropsychology and what can we do about it with what the research is showing us now. Yeah, yeah. so the two problems they really kind of lay out is that working memory can no longer, this is a quote from them, so working memory can no longer be understood as an inferential cognitive mechanism that operates only blatantly or explicitly. So again, explicitly versus implicitly. Instead, this construct requires significant modification to include the neuroscientific principle that perceptions and ideas are directly linked with implicit action. Um, so 
again, we're they're they're seeing that our focus as kind of a field of study around working memory and the stuff we really want to focus on in clinical uh, practice is explicit. We want to work with that. They're kind of decentering that and saying we need to include the implicit actions because perceptions and ideas are directly linked to those implicit activation patterns. Yes, yes. And they do that by focusing what at first seems like two parts of the brain in the basal ganglia and the cerebellum. Mm -hmm. But again, and we're going to talk about what all those things, what basal ganglia is and what the cerebellum is, but it's still through that systems orientation. Mm -hmm. So the implicit nature of these functional hubs is associated directly, even, even integrally so, to our perception and idea and then whatever behavior slash planning or prediction is going to come out of this. Yeah, and I love the, the, even the way that your thought flows there. They have this brilliant line that kind of connects with what you're saying of like the giving way to. Yeah. That they say, um, while automatic behaviors are observed throughout the phylogenetic hierarchy, nature's oldest solutions for generating adaptive behaviors, which again, their whole focus is how does the brain change and adapt to an ever-changing world that's like in part one the whole point of this series was how the heck does the brain change and adapt in a world that is always changing and adapting itself and so they say nature's oldest solutions for generating adaptive behaviors never emphasize sophisticated cognition or conscious cognitive control and evolution has also preserved those mechanisms that are effective nearly all of which have been preserved in humans. So again, thinking when we are looking at the, the adaptability of our species, the oldest and most basic, and well, the most primal way we've survived is not by prioritizing these high-level thoughts. Right. It's by organizing unconscious activation patterns in ways that keep us safe. To me, yeah, it, it's it's based on the integrated health of those non-conscious, uh, what are, like you said, primitive structures and their integrated functioning. Mm-hmm. Like how healthy is that system yeah. in terms of its adaptive or adaptability to its environment? Yeah. Consciousness then is whatever. Like it's like, okay, sure. Yeah. Like you'll you'll be conscious in that process because these structures and their system integration give way for some reason <laughs> to consciousness, but that's not the point evolutionarily. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think they then go on to talk about we've already kind of mentioned the basal ganglia and the cerebrocerebellar systems or circuitries. But the kind of second problem, so if the first problem is that we can't just talk about the explicit cognitive mechanisms that are at work. We have to talk about the implicit actions that give way to these explicit activations. The second problem they talk about is that there's a part of the brain called the medial temporal lobe, which Mm. is kind of loosely associated with um, our ability to recall memory and adjust it Mm. to like change the memory explicitly to then engage in new goal-directed behaviors. Um, They talk about in the field of clinical neuroscience and clinical neuropsychology, 
the medial temporal lobe is the only memory system directly assessed in neuropsychological evaluation. But they kind of challenge that by saying, however, all three of these systems, the basal ganglia, the cerebellar system, and the medial temporal lobe, are required uh, require coordinated interactions to generate and apply executive functioning, which is required for ongoing interactive behavior. So mm. we're not just thinking about the explicit memory of the medial temporal lobe and how that can be explicitly identified and organized. We're ta- we have to talk about the hierarchical organization, the vertical organization of the brain, mm. and how we even come to know explicit working memory. Yeah, and it's not as you might think it is. Yeah, like that to me is again, this really this article brings together so much of what we've been saying really throughout this entire lit review of the podcast that it is neurosequential, yes, but not linearly. It is yeah. associative and parallel mm. in process. Mm-hmm. And that to me is, again, one of the most... Um, the words are escaping me because of the degree of, of influence, but that is one of the most meaningful implications of this series of articles. Yeah. I would say like psychologically, probably the most important because I mean, we're all familiar with the, the experience. What's the, um, I'm just thinking of the context in the Midwest of the biblical scripture around like, why do I do the things I don't want to do? And I don't do the things I want to do. Like this is, this article is directly connected to that idea of I have executive functioning. I have the ability to think about what I'm doing and think about what I'm thinking. Yeah. And for some reason, the illusion of choice there. Yeah. Just the top down influence isn't enough. That is a limited view of executive functioning. Yeah. There has to be some sort of integrative awareness of these bottom up processes. Yes. To then appropriately execute top down. processing mechanisms which i think is so we we mentioned this just a little bit before we started recording of it feels very nice to read something from people in the field who are not doing the kind of uh, i feel like it's an easy trope of like i only want to talk about bottom-up processes and i only want to talk about top-down processes right they're they're in and how they bring together the article, they talk about the importance of how bottom-up processes support top-down processes. And so if you're not being aware of the bottom-up influences, then you're going to miss the top-down ways that you can adjust and shift. And that, again, I know this is parsing out language, but what you just used, which to me is very helpful in conversation bottom up versus top down Mm. but that is us imposing a mechanism of understanding onto a parallel process system Mm -hmm. that is almost instantaneously operative yeah so that's again where we have to understand it's not that the bottom up okay so the bottom up goes first yeah and then hopefully supports the top appraising its function and planning for the future it's so much more streamlined than yeah. that, and you'll find, which this article does so beautifully in bringing together such diverse literature, the bottom up has plans for the future as well, mm. including its experience of the present and it, the appraisal of reward and 
and threat or consequence. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe the, I think the um, idea might be helpful to some in this way. Of, I, I like to think of the, uh, the sort of linearity construct that we use that's kind of helpful for understanding in neuroscience. I, I like to think of it as like, I mean, there is probably some level of linearity in the brain, but it's so quick yeah. that we don't really know. It's like um, trying I mean, to find like the origin of the chicken of, or the egg. It's like <laughs> we couldn't go back far enough to try to figure that out. Yeah. So like it, there is a linear process at some point, but then like, is it really and worth- And it loses meaning. Yeah. Is it really worth down at that level of depth to think that, you know, that has to be the way the whole thing is. It's like, no, it's, it's all, ha- it, there's a um, simultaneity Yes, of an apparent simultaneity. Yeah, yeah, in the brain that allows us to talk linear linearly mm-hmm. and understand that it's not as clean as just a one way street. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, even we talk about this very simply in a lot of our trainings with what relationship subcortical activation has to neocortical functioning Mm. we talk about it in terms of every 600 milliseconds which again is Mm -hmm. the most accurate time orientation we have Mm. Uh, every 600 milliseconds you already have a disparity between neocortical and subcortical activation yeah 10 times 10 times 10 times the disparity but in that experientially you're far beyond any ability to temporally grasp yeah the transition between systems yeah yeah it's even hard to grasp what a millisecond is. you cannot i mean it's actually like you can't do <laughs> you it can't. You, you can't do it like the, we're not quick enough not quick yeah, enough yeah. yeah the yeah i mean for well yeah i don't think it's relevant yeah. but yeah so that's that's what we're gonna talk yeah. about and, and i will say for listeners now that if you've made it 25 minutes in that was um, 25 yeah. wow You've felt like a <laughs> yeah. You're probably catching wind the fact that we've made it through the first section of this article. That there is in no way that we plan to get through the whole thing. Yeah, uh, it's twelve pages. We don't plan to get through the whole thing in this one. This is going to be part one of a two part series. Yes. Uh, the first part we want to just, as the article does, go through those two systems: the basal ganglia system and the cerebral cerebellar system, mm-hmm. to talk about how the these bottom up vertically organizing systems of the brain support the concept of executive functioning yep in part two then we'll talk about how that influences memory and the developing child yeah. and, and all of that and then in part four of the article which would be then in two episodes uh the authors give some really good practical um examples of how this relates to clinical practice mm. um and particularly about learning and executive functioning and memory. So um, for today, we will just float into the two systems, which is no small task, the basal ganglia and the cerebellar, uh, cerebrocerebellar cerebellar system, and how they support this concept of executive functioning. Yes. By far, one of, like, and just to give a little history again, we, as if you've been in the world of clinical approach therapy, even if you are, you know, adjacently aware of this, 
the cognitive revolution led the way in prioritizing executive Executive functioning functioning as a top-down moderator of bodily-based experience. Of control. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I can modulate my experience through top-down control. Mm -hmm. I can look at something, if I look at something long enough, I can say that's actually not sad, that's that's a good thing. Yeah, cognitive reappraisal. That's a way of cognitively and if it, it through executive function shift basically the psychological landscape of my life yeah and if you're wanting to talk about the history i mean <clears throat> even back to i think therefore i am you know philosophically Descartes, yeah. yeah these roots were planted in the great enlightenment of mm-hmm. the scientific resol- revolution mm-hmm. um that we became so captivated by what i love the articles talk about or the authors talk about how it's not even evolutionarily selected for Mm. inclusion into ongoing development, Mm. but we became so entranced by the power or the, the potential power of the, our top-down processing that we centered it in our philosophy and in our scientific inquiry, which then gave way psychologically to the cognitive revolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. We could talk so much about that. One of the things that I found interesting that I'll just note on a personal level is how much this article in particular reminded me of psychoanalytic thought. Mm. And and the reason I say that is because in psychoanalysis, like Freud's whole, um, I guess, project, uh, kind of very broadly summarized, could be that he was looking to decenter conscious, conscious mind. the conscious mm-hmm. ego in like the conception of a self, a personality, yeah. and say there are unconscious parts of the process that we're totally missing if we just take people for their word. Mm-hmm. He has a whole he has a whole article or a whole book called The Psychopathology of Everyday Life, in which he's trying to convince people like in an ungodly amount of ways that they do things for reasons they don't know and really from this article i think we'll hit on that so often is like the unconscious processes are incredibly important to be aware of in clinical work Mm -hmm. and to not and this is maybe why we go a little (laughs) bit more um adversely to some rigid cognitive behavioral therapies is you know, if you're just seeking to go from the explicit only, hoping that it changes the implicit without activating the implicit, you won't find memory reconsolidation. No, yeah. you can hope for behavioral change short term. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, yeah, you'll be competing. Yeah. Um, one of the things um, I just want to read this uh, quote and then kind of. Where are you? Um, I am on 255. Okay. At the top left-hand corner we'll go back because there's some things okay. on 254 okay that yeah, yeah. i want to yeah. yeah i want to say uh they the authors say one unifying principle of brain function is that all representations of perception cognitions and behaviors are retained within the fun the same circuits of functional connectivity that were activated when the experiences were initially encountered this is the thing that we talked about in the last episode of functional connectivity is is you know these perceptions are not just held in the hippocampus. The yeah. hippocampus is not the only epicenter of memory. 
that it's where these centers were activated when they were engaging functional connectivity memory is stored. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they talk about uh, this fact, well accepted within neuroscience, provides many clues about how the brain functions in a unified way for the purpose of ongoing adaptation. And to me, like this idea of the unconscious really connected to um, Freud has a really small article, which I would recommend a lot of people go read because it, it might be a disconfirming experience, but he has an oh, article yeah. Yeah, that is uh, labeled, and I don't remember if there's an ING or not, but it's um, remember remembering, repeating, and working through. Mm. And um, Freud says, which connects so much to this article, that if you can't, if a client can't explicitly remember something, they will repeat it in their in their unconscious and bodily interaction patterns. Mm. And a client will repeat in, in an enactment these old memories until they're eventually able to work through it yeah, and find some sort of resolution in being able to stand up for themselves as an example or being able to you know, make sense of something in a new way and work through it. I just think you know, this article is saying something new in neuroscience, but it's not something new in philosophical thought. Or psychology, yeah, even. In yeah, in psychological thought. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, if we are just paying attention to what is being spoken in therapy, we miss so much. Yeah, and that's, I think, intuitively true. I think there's useful conversation to be had about what utility unspoken content has, because mm. I can hear people saying like, well, you can only work with what the client or patient gives you. Mm -hmm. And like, I mean, yeah. Yeah. But how open are you to what qualifies as what the client is giving you? Yes. Yeah. Which I I find so fascinating is like, we're we're always talking. Yeah. We're always saying something. Even if no. It just might not be verbal utterances. Yeah. Through the verbal communication pattern. Yeah. Um, So, you mentioned something that can just briefly tie us back into 254 with it's not just in the hippocampus. And that is Mm. really in that first section on multiple memory systems. The authors sort of intuit that, uh, well, the meaning I made of it is that the authors intuit the reductionistic oversimplification of memory to the hippocampus by talking about one of the most landmark amnesia cases of bilateral surgical hippocampal removal of a patient who was then able still to learn a variety of new skills and procedures, which prior to this should not have happened. Mm -hmm. If you don't have the hippocampus, you don't have memory. That was essentially the thought. Mm -hmm. And in that case was so clearly illuminated that there's a much more integrated network or systems oriented reality unfolding because this person does not have a hippocampus at all. Yeah. bilateral surgical removal yeah. of the hippocampus. And in the conclusion of that, or the the, the point at least, uh, they note that the discovery of and dissociations between different memory systems were slowly investigated and became a generally accepted reality. A later clinician was arguably the first individual who proposed that the computations of the cerebral cortex, the basal ganglia, and the cerebellum all making distinct contributions to learning and memory actually operate within a unified framework in an integrated way. Hmm. Again, landmark hypothesis that, and this is kind of what's represented in the cerebrocerebellar circuitry, that the cerebral cortex, the basal ganglia, and the cerebellum 
in that order, you're working from top to bottom. Cerebral cortex, well, kind of top to middle to bottom. Yeah. Cerebral cortex into the basal ganglia, which is in the center, kind of if you're looking at your hand model, it's like what's wrapping around the thumb and then into the cerebellum, which is there at the base of mm -hmm. the brain behind the brainstem if you're looking straight on. Yeah. That those seemingly far apart parts or <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nodes or yeah. modules um, in themselves form a unified framework in an integrated way, yeah. which means parallel process, emergent, complex system. Yeah. And, and, and the integration gives way to adaptation. Like levels of integration give way to levels of adaptive processes. And adaptation is characterized by auto automatic implicit cognitions. And again, don't think explicit cognition. Mm. Think of cognitive processes in the brain, even implicit. Automatic implicit cognitions and behaviors that alternate with episodes of higher order cognitive control. Mm -hmm. So that is where you get this beautiful marriage or the parallel processes of bottom up and top down yes. uh, experiences. Yes. And all of that um, in this multiple memory systems section is in favor of adaptive evolution. Mm -hmm. Saying simply the brain evolved to meet the needs of interactive behavior. Mm. So this again is a point to me of what still shockingly is debated um, that the brain developed to meet social existence mm. needs. Mm. But that's why that preceding quote that you read that what was favored evolutionarily was not conscious thought or that it was never emphasized the sophisticated cognition or conscious cognitive control was not what was evolutionarily selected for inclusion. Mm -hmm. It was implicit and automatic behaviors yeah. in favor yeah. of social adaptability. Yeah, that eventually gave way to this. And continues to give way again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. as an evolving, adapting species. Yeah, yeah. So do you, is, does it feel a right time to move into basal ganglia? And, and Yeah, to me, I'm going into that next, the vertical organization of the brain. Perfect. Or do you want to go later? No, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So, oh, I'm sorry. You you were wanting to start that. Just no, in no. what you. No, I I really I'm I'm wanting to just sort of be aware of where we are. We've if if you've listened, we've jumped around. I think I feel my own excitement. I know. To get to Anticipation. Some yeah. In this article, but um, wanting to ground where we are. So, in looking at the dis the distinct contributions of many learning and memory systems of the brain to guide adaptive behavior, which again includes conscious and unconscious, explicit and implicit processes. The authors then propose the basal ganglia, cere cerebral cerebellar system, and the medial temporal lobe as important uh, systems to focus on. The reason the authors then focus primarily on the basal ganglia and the cerebrocerebellar systems is because the medial temporal lobe is basically a, a recognition memory system. And what's really interesting about this part of the brain is that it is not vertically organized. Mm -hmm. It's horizontally, horizontally organized, which really just means it allows for the 
corically-based information retention, and its primary function allows sensory perceptual experiences to persist, persist within the neocortex. So if you're thinking about the medial temporal lobe, which again is the only part of the brain that is tested for neuropsychological evaluation. Love that. I mean, right there, like the implications are just astounding. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's primary function essentially is to allow the neocortex to retain information from lower levels of the brain. Yeah. So it comes up into this medial temporal lobe system and it's not vertically organizing, it's horizontally organizing. So it's helping Working with what it has. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's helping the neocortex to just process what it has already received. Yep. So then the authors say, well, hey, wait a second. If we have the basal ganglia and we have the cer- cerebral cerebellar system that are giving information upwards into these higher levels of cortical thinking, we need to really pay attention to what their role and processes are because the medial temporal lobe is just on the neocortex keeping what the neocortex already has yeah so then we're going to jump into yeah if you're looking at the your hand model it's like where your where your pointer finger folds over and where your pinky folds over Mm -hmm. like right there Mm -hmm. so on the outside yeah the temporal lobe just thinking from there a horizontal organization of of energy and information Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so the authors give just basic um, sentences about what these two systems, basal ganglia and cerebrocerebellar systems, do. Yep. I feel like it'd be nice to give give those just like simple statements yeah. to hold I love on that. to, and then we'll really dig into some. What the heck does this all mean? <laughs> yeah. So the basal ganglia is an extremely vast body. Uh, oh wait, is an instrumental learning system that primarily operates implicitly. So you can think of this uh, system is underneath conscious explicit awareness. It is a it is a conglomeration of corticostriatal, palatal, palatal, yep, sorry, sorry. thalamal cortical networks. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the brain system you can think of if you go Google this system. There's kind of pictures where it, it almost has like a spiral. It like wraps uh, around the limbic. Yeah, kind of system. The internal part of the brain Mm -hmm. um, and operates primarily um, implicitly. Implicitly. And it's a learning system that later what they talk about is it is a selective learning system. So its primary directive is really to inhibit more information going upwards for the kind of prime directive to learn specific tasks. Then the cerebrocerebellar um, is foundational for anticipatory control, and it primarily serves automaticity functions by predicting predicting sensory motor outcomes, which allows for rapid behavioral adjustment auto- automatically through bypassing slowly operating sensory cortical feedback mechanisms, which is higher up in the mm, brain. Mm. So you have the basal ganglia, which is a sort of selecting system, which is taking information and organizing it, sensory perceptive information, organizing it for learning, for higher mm-hmm. level of cognition, operates primarily implicitly. And then you have the cerebral cerebellar system, which is uh, really serving 
at a very broad level for predicting sensory motor outcomes. And then I think of it as like a catalyst, like it will, it will catch glimpses of what is taking place, produce an anticipatory output. And then if that is getting feedback loops that are, that are kind of affirmative, then it catalyzes that even more into the, um, Cere uh, cerebral networks, yeah. the cortical networks, yep. for more processing on this experience. Based on relevance to current experience mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and yeah. existing constructs of future prediction. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So then looking just at the basal game, do you have anything to say about the kind of high order? Uh, not with, <laughs> not with not where with we the are time. in the time. Cool. Yeah. So then just like let's zoom into the basal ganglia yeah and really the where are you at on the page um, 255 nice just the the main section basal ganglia system solving the selection, selection problem. problem yes so the selection problem you can really think of as like a core organizing principle for the basal ganglia because the basal ganglia is largely inhibitory yes as a modulator of cortical functioning yeah so it, i like to think of like um the metaphor that comes to mind is like a spaceship launching a space. It has to let go mm -hmm. of some things to, to accomplish to accomplish getting out of the atmosphere. Yeah. So then the uh, basal ganglia is that part of the brain that is saying, now we need to let go of that part. Yeah. Now we need to let go of that part. Like we don't need that sensory information. We don't need that perceptual mm -hmm. information in order to do what we need to do. Yeah. So it's, it's selecting what is important. Yes. Mm -hmm. I, the, one of the ways I conceptualize, as, conceptualize it as well is like if, um, if you've ever lost your phone in a group of people or like been around people when you lost your phone mm -hmm. and conversation is kind of carrying on naturally and you're just like, hey, wait, someone call my phone. Yeah. It's like a way of saying like all of this noise needs to stop, inhibit, so that a very specific task can be carried out. Yeah. So... Everybody shut up for a second. Help me find my phone or my keys or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, it's so interesting because they, they talk about um, how the cor the cortex functions according to the principle of excitation. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so they, they say this thing, which I feel like we could just spin off for hours when we're talking about different diagnoses like ADHD and stuff. But they talk about how an excited brain would be attracted to everything. And that it would be constantly bombarded with far too many internal and external stimuli to be able to function adaptively. So then the basal ganglia is this modulator mm -hmm. for the, the cortex, which helps our brain. Dynamically and adaptively select. I love yes. that language. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, it helps the cortex know what to get excited about. And when you're thinking excited, you can think of like spending more energy towards thinking about yeah um, and processing and through precisely so yeah like more precisely yeah now there's some there's a language here that i think we would get very jacked on and you could very easily bypass it but when we're talking about parallel processes and apparent simultaneity <laughs> they use the word loops yeah. which in our trainings carries so much weight and we talk so much about the importance of tracking these loops of processing because this is where bottom up meets top down 
to excite another version of a bottom up meets top down. You can think of yeah. this like these concentric loops, that, loops. Yeah, that are um, maybe growing in one direction and getting bigger the more it has time to process. Yeah, or growing in different directions. And we reference that. So this is, I hope. I'm going to use some language that's visual without the ability to make it visual for the listener. But this is one we talked about, the, the disparity between neocortical 600 millisecond to subcortical 50 millisecond process loops. That's really illustrating the vertical hmm. difference yeah. between these systems. Because again, when we think about the role of the basal ganglia, it's able to just again, uh, in an abbreviated sense, have 10 opportunities to make sense of an experience before giving rise to the neocortical conscious thought. Mm. And from there, that's vertical. So if you think about the concentric density of loops in subcortical systems integration, and then the power of kind of launching into larger neocortical loops, we, al we also can think about that from a horizontal mm -hmm. standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, I'm just thinking like, why is that, why is that feel so important? Even just, I'm just speaking like from a clinical perspective, because you could talk about real life too. And, but the fact that we use the language adaptive so often <laughs> and not, you know, we try to stay away from you know, good, oh, bad, or yeah, good, bad, right, wrong, yeah, maladaptive sometimes. <laughs> um, but the idea that if you start to talk about, which I know we're not getting into yet in this article, but if you start to introduce the idea of memory mm -hmm. and that what we're interacting with in our clients, with our clients in our session and in our rooms, we're in we're re-engaging the basal ganglia in a way of how has it inhibited. <laughs> and focused, yeah. modulated what we think about before. So then there's there's potential ways where our brains in the present moment are missing valuable information because we're operating based off memory and not current experiencing. And it, to me that like the way that the basal ganglia can be influenced by memory mm. is super important. And yeah. thinking about- well, and Oh. Well, I was, I was thinking about Daniel Kahneman's idea of uh, the remembering self or the historical self versus the experiencing self mm -hmm. and how... Call back to the three selves. Get, oh, yeah. Call back to the three selves, In too. In our yeah. podcast. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Go listen to that episode. That's right. But, but the, the idea that these systems can have, if you want to anthropomorphize the systems, they can have postures to information, Yeah. which is I'm only going to pass on what has previously worked or I'm open to engaging, you know, is the basal ganglia going to be open to well, new patterns of flow? So let's, uh, oh, interesting. A lot of integration happening. Um, the interaction between the three selves, for me, one of the ways I was just thinking about it is as if the basal ganglia sets up the culture and economy mm -hmm. of the interaction between the selves. Mm -hmm. Because in the very specific language, um, the basal ganglia's neuroanatomic position for selecting and integrating information from all the possibilities or candidates of perceptions, cognitions, and motor activities or actions are represented within the cortex. So the experiencing self as a conscious opportunity 
to me mm-hmm. is linked to the remembering self through the culture created by the basal ganglia system. Mm. What does that feel like to you? I, yeah, I think that feels great. I think it, there's an element of the basal ganglia that feels, because really what you're talking about in the basal ganglia is a construct of an interaction between many different systems. Yes. You know, you think it's of the space between. Yeah. Yeah. The long name is like absurd to pronounce and yeah. really hard. Yeah. We just call it the basal ganglia system, which is a way of making several things one thing. Yeah. And as so, a system. Yeah, as a system, which yeah. that system is emergent. Or a culture. Yeah. That's where my brain yeah, is. Yeah, and that's, going. that's exactly what I like is like we, culture is just a system. It's an unconscious system of organizing. Incredibly diverse and complex. Yeah. 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 Hard it's, to pronounce. Yes. Just like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we don't think if, if culture is left to be un, unmodulated itself, which is where this, the cerebellum will come in later, Ugh. if the cerebellum is not you know, activating some sort of adjustment to the perceptual choices, perceptual choices of the basal ganglia, then the culture will go on just doing its unmediated. thing. Unmediated and potentially into unhealth. Yes. And yeah, uh, yeah, I love that. And potentially into unhealth, just to leave it there. Yeah. Um, I think that culture as a analogy to this interaction is also really helpful because Culture, just in the same way that the basal ganglia is reward-based, culture often promotes what is pleasing and or supportive to the movers and shakers Mm. of the culture. Mm -hmm. So who has power, et cetera, often creates opportunity to collect more power. Mm -hmm. Very much the same way in the basal ganglia, this is a callback to Casalino's social neuron theory, but as you look at the way the basal ganglia is oriented to reward-based reinforcement or instrumental learning, that to me is is again where it's going off of what is adaptive in the moment Mm. in either experiencing pleasure or avoiding pain. Okay, and I love that orienting principle that you just gave because reward is very interesting as an organizing principle yeah. and, and really what misunderstood yeah <laughs> what the authors talk about is you know okay so if the basal ganglia's whole identity essentially within the system is to select the most adaptive actions to execute while also inhibiting or suppressing the attending to or execution of competing perceptions thoughts and behaviors how the heck does it learn to do that yeah and they say that the kind of key is if we decenter the prefrontal cortex from this executive function zone of yeah of uh, decision making and put that lower into the brain into these zones. Well, then what emerges is the idea of a reward. Our the basal ganglia starts to identify what it should activate or prioritize and what it should inhibit or suppress based on the idea of a reward. Yeah and. I love that in their like um, definition of what a reward is, it is so broad mm-hmm. that that they're like, well, really, you learn. The learning just continues, like yeah. the developmental trajectory just goes backwards because you learn what a reward is based on social cues and experiencing. Yeah, they even uh, they say um, 
a reward, quote unquote, yeah. ranging yes. from anxiety so and negativism to a sense of excitement, pleasure, or simple relief drives much of what we decide to do, either explicitly or implicitly. Decide to do. Yeah. I well, love that language. Well, and even the idea that anxiety and negativism could be can a be a reward. Absolutely. Okay, let's like forget everything we've learned. <laughs> yeah. Like that redefines like the landscape of our brain and shame has to like stand trial. Because shame as this like identifier of what is good and bad, right or wrong, right or wrong, acceptable, me or not you, acceptable. Yeah, yeah. That our brain is organized around rewards, which could include. So then, what negatively if somebody, balanced? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What if somebody's reward is like to make themselves anxious? Because in a way, their brain is organizing the idea that anxiety gets me care. And, it, at, well, so let's put a middle one in there. Okay. Anxiety gets me. So care could be the outcome. Yeah. Away could be the outcome. Yes. Pursuit yeah, could be the outcome. Yeah. Strength could be the outcome. Like anxiety gets me. And this is exactly the role the basal ganglia plays mm -hmm. functionally in either selecting or deselecting potential reality yeah god this is so sick I know. and i hope people have stayed with the hour because like to to understand like this then is the importance of why we talk about attachment theory is because <laughs> look you at how easily we can just like jump here yeah this is it yeah this is the meaning this is why it has to come into the into the discussion because you learn rewards based on interpersonal interactions and the effect they have on the ongoing looping of your system and the culture between systems yeah so if i can't get my needs met maybe the relief of the stress of one of my needs not getting met then becomes the reward then that's where what i'm aiming for and that's what my basal ganglia learns to direct behavior towards i've it's interesting to say that because i've been having a lot of conversations with clients about settling for zero sum mm. instead of seeking positive in life pleasure desire gains you know having just learned that i should aim for a zero sum like neutral is now good expectations set yeah not positive so then now we're getting pleasure is the avoidance of pain not the presence of desire yeah Realization that, of desire. Yeah. To me, I mean, just like the neural systems governing these behaviors, pursuit, avoidance, etc., are based on outcomes that are associated with the dopaminergic and noradrenergic systems. That's reward and arousal. Yeah. Excitation. Excitation. That to me, if you think about what is evolutionarily adaptive for our species, it is to feel congruent with the choices and behaviors made to pursue nora, noradrenergic and dopaminergic realities. Mm. Those are going to pair very well with the continued evolution of our species and the propagation of our species. Mm -hmm. We're thinking about it from just purely an evolutionary standpoint. Yeah. That those two elements of reward will likely lead 
to more life than less. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 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 I think this, they point out in this section on reward and how reward is one of, is the main principle of selection that the basal ganglia functions off of is that it they talk about how this is critical to understanding the individual differences of humans yes that we've learned different rewards and level of rewards through experience Mm -hmm. and through it adaptively changing to an ever-changing world and in that way if we don't put the if we don't put the um space of choice deeper in the brain then we don't understand the humans and the individual differences that we all have Mm. to me like as a therapist that has profound implications for the amount of empathy and compassion i can have for my clients you know we talk all the time to about the idea of asking the question why does this make sense and how is this actually adaptive yes at even the most as a mantra like like the end of the spectrum quote-unquote disorders that again we don't believe in disorders we believe in uh, adaptively ordered humans ordered who make other humans uncomfortable and yeah. sometimes hurt others but like <laughs> we can take the most far end of the spectrum and like understand that in some way this is adaptive if we track the story and now i can have empathy and compassion I love, I love the long pause there because I, <laughs> and I hope, I, I do hope that like the listeners can, I felt the need to interrupt because sometimes a podcast with long pauses makes me think Did something's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but I hope you can just sit with, as a listener, the last like 10 minutes because that feels super important yeah. around if reward is the way we're organized to inhibit and prioritize information from a bottom-up perspective then we really in some way have to go backwards in our timeline to understand what is rewarding and why yeah and i want to read a little bit here just to end our time we didn't get as far as we wanted to classic Um, but perhaps (laughs) yeah but perhaps that's meaningful um what I think one of the implications for me of this article is a wild reframe of some cultural constructs like reward and control. Mm. Because yes, to me, power and access to power are devastating to the rise and fall of a individual, a family, yeah. a community, a race, mm-hmm. an ethnicity, a culture. But that to me, when we understand it neuropsychologically as a very creative and adaptive means of using long existing system, neurobiological system, reality and function, mm-hmm. to me then we can have compassion and expectation for change. I'm going to read here just a brief um selection from the paragraph preceding what is reward called how do the basal ganglia do what they do it says therefore the basal ganglia system learns what it should do as well as what it should not do in novel situations the frontal parietal network anticipates reward probabilities 
by relying on expectations based on previous experiences. It is a system that has been taught to believe, taught to believe, I love that, both implicitly and explicitly, that if I do this, then that should happen. Therefore, this system can quickly release automatic or implicit behaviors without conscious cognitive control. The basal ganglia system, and we're going to get into the cerebellum next recording, mm-hmm. <laughs> along yeah. with memory, but the basal ganglia system, again, is about inhibition and cognitive simplicity, mm-hmm. giving way to the most relevant information based on previous experience, a lot, very large degree of variability in mm-hmm. terms of what's determined to be relevant, but in service of reward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. To me, like when you, when we can talk about the brain in this complex of a way, I feel a sense of it's interesting because I I don't feel this while I'm talking about it. I actually get really activated during these these discussions because there's so much that is important and Meaning. so many breadcrumbs and like we could spend hours and hours on just this article alone. Yeah. I feel kind of uh, activated in those moments. But then when I sit back, there's this moment of like deep gratitude towards the human and nervous systems that I'm connecting with in therapy. Yeah. Like thinking like, parts of their system, particularly the basal ganglia, that has found a way to anchor their life in some way yeah, towards something that is rewarding in some way. It's interesting to me that you brought up that, that feeling because I was having, as I was reading that, just a deep gratitude even for this space here mm. where we are two humans that are just <laughs> reading an article together, <laughs> Yeah, you know, and just filled with like tearful gratitude for you and for this space and and for our our moment in space time right now Mm. um but i think that's i don't know if it's anthropomorphizing to say that my basal ganglia feels seen Mm. (laughs) but like that culture between systems that orients my mind Mm. feels very well nourished as we talk about these things yeah yeah Mm. You saying I feel seen just reminds me of like, I mean, maybe that's the most basic application of this, what we're talking about, about the basal ganglia is, you know, people will literally not hear, see, feel, taste, or smell things that could be helpful or integrated for them if they do not feel safe in connection. If they we do likely not, won't. Yeah. If we do not feel safe to open up to, to paying attention to these unconscious processes, we will continue to automatically repeat them. And, you know, I talk with some... With very cons- little choice. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. yeah. I, I talk in consultation all the time. Like, it makes sense why they don't hear what you're saying, why they don't see what you're doing. Because their system, their, their basal ganglia is saying, like, that's... And that's um, ancillary information yeah i mean just think about that from in in terms of the integration of the basal ganglia system what it has given up to the conscious mind was deselecting what it is you're trying to convey or or feel with yeah it's like that's not relevant based on the lived experience of this system 
Mm -hmm. to what reality means unfolding around us. Mm -hmm. It's just not there. And that's where, again, the authors go on to talk about, and this is, I think, what we can launch with our our next conversation. Um, Simply put, all decision-making is not under the control of the prefrontal cortex. In new, unfamiliar situations, the prefrontal cortices anticipate probabilities or a best guess about outcomes originating from previous perceptions and idea-action linkages. It serves to link or integrate aspects of knowledge with chunks of previous actions to generate a new or crude behavioral representation. Mm. And that to me is exactly what you're talking about. It makes sense that they can't hear what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Hear as an umbrella term, saying as an umbrella mm-hmm. term. It yeah. makes sense mm-hmm. that they can't. Yeah. yeah, I love the anticipation of thinking next week or next uh, episode, whenever. I don't want to commit to time. Um, (laughs) I want to let it be as free form as my space is. Um, uh, It's a personal strategy, maybe, that uh, we'll talk about the cerebellum and the cerebellum's role in kind of actively reevaluating sensory experiences to either almost have like a cue of mismatch, prediction error, or to continue exciting the brain in and specifically exciting the cortices mm-hmm. in what they're already processing. Yeah. Um, and then from there, thinking of memory and how, yeah. you know, what we're, the, pre- the past is always present. But that doesn't mean the past has to be our present. Yeah. And what fires together, wires together. Yeah. To me right there, like with, with excitation, you see a recapitulation of earlier meaning made mm-hmm. neurochemically and psychologically yeah that's where we got to be careful <laughs> you got to wake it up yeah tread cautiously and safely that's right meaningfully with bravery courage Caution doesn't mean that courage goes out the window nope just means that we fear is not a bad thing oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh uh, now there is a whole episode we go on uh, i think there's a couple books about that though. yeah <laughs> all right thank you all for listening yeah cheers uh thank you for being a part of this process holding space for us and hopefully we're holding space for you as a virtual other somewhere in your life um and stay posted we'll we'll read more i guess Uh, (laughs) we always there's anything that's sure (laughs) yeah yeah the one assurance that you have at the end of every podcast is that we will always keep reading up right after this like (laughs) literally (laughs) okay uh take care We hope that you've enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you stay curious and create community around discussing the research that matters most to clinicians and researchers. If you're curious to learn more about something you heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming case conceptualization trainings and community events. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes. Leave us a review and follow us on social media by searching the Evidence-Based Therapist Podcast.